This is Lit Mix, a podcast about the books that challenge us. I'm Andrea. And I'm Rachel. We are friends who met in eighth grade and grew up to be a high school English teacher and a K-12 school librarian. On each episode of our show, we focus on one book, exploring why it's controversial and what makes it important. In today's special Rewind episode, we're discussing Toni Morrison's classic, The Bluest Eye. The Jewish philosopher, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was famous throughout the 20th century for marching with and being friends with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., once wrote that wonder is the root of all knowledge. Now, this seems true to me if we're talking about the kind of curiosity that sends us to Google and the library, that drive to discover stuff and learn new facts and skills. But it also strikes me that wonder is essential if we want to get to know another person. And I wonder if wonder is the root of loving other people. Today we're talking about Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye. The scene that made me think of this quote from Heschel, the central character, Picola, a black girl, goes into a store to buy candy. When the white immigrant storekeeper asks what she wants with a bored, yeah, Picola looks up at him and sees the vacuum where curiosity ought to lodge. And something more, the total absence of human recognition, the glazed separateness. If wonder is the root of all knowledge, its absence may be the root of all ignorance, maybe also the root of hate. In Toni Morrison's author's note to go along with the book, she writes that she was inspired to write this story after one of her own childhood friends, a Black girl like her, shared that she wanted to have blue eyes, which of course is Bicola's biggest wish in the bluest eye. This is our rewind episode where we'll be going back to a classic novel. Since the book is older even than us, do you agree that we're not going to worry about any spoilers for this one? We are going to feel free to discuss and reveal everything. Okay, let's go for it. So The Bluest Eye was Toni Morrison's first novel published in 1970 when she was 39 years old. I like that. She went on to publish nine more novels and eventually received a Pulitzer Prize, a Nobel Prize, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She died in 2019 at 88 years old. Before we get into the book, I thought maybe we could go into our own personal histories with her works. Just to give a little bit of background, my only previous experience reading any of her novels was Sula, which we were assigned in AP English in 12th grade. It was a difficult read for me, not really emotionally, but I found the story hard to follow. Maybe because of the complexity of her writing at the time, I would like to try it again for sure after reading this. The Bluest Eye was only the second of her novels that I've read, and I read it for the first time for this podcast. I actually listened to the audiobook narrated by Toni Morrison at the same time as reading the physical book in front of me, which I think made for a richer experience and was a pretty cool way to read the book. So I also listened to the audiobook narrated by Toni Morrison, and that is my favorite way to read her. She is 
an excellent narrator and I get so much more out of her books when I listen to them than just from the printed page alone. It's almost like a bonus feature to have a book read to you by the author when the author is such a skilled narrator. So much of her dialogue and her characters are like really obviously drawn from life. And when she is sort of acting them out for us, you really get a feel for who those people are. Last year, I listened to God Help the Child narrated by the author and the year before that I read along with and listened to Beloved and here and there I have really enjoyed some of Morrison's writing on art censorship politics and self-regard in her collected volume which is called The Source of Self-Regard so definitely recommend Morrison in general even though my kind of experience with her is pretty slender and she's an amazing author to read (laughs) How do you how do you even say Tony Morrison's a really great writer? Like it's like Wait, did I say no, that? No, no, I'm just like, how do I even say what I want to say? Like, you know, she's so celebrated. I don't even know. Like, despite all of the difficult emotions of this book and the the pain of this story, it is like just a pleasure to read her words i see what you mean there's part of it it's like oh this woman is a phenomenal artist which like yeah we all should know that the poets Mm -hmm. are you know all the prizes but then when you read it it's like wow like she really conjures situations and people and words in a way that's just like oh wow i just got my heart ripped out of my chest by words yeah (laughs) by like a story even at the same time especially towards the beginning of the book i saw a lot of humor in it oh yeah claudia and frida's mom (laughs) i thought she was kind of (laughs) a humorous character um the the way that she reacted to things ain't nobody needs three quarts of milk (laughs) hilarious if kind of like exhausting But to go into like some of the our favorite parts or what we loved right away at the beginning, I kind of latched on to the one part where Claudia talks about her relationship with the white baby dolls. And if, yes. if I was going to write a paper about this book, I think I would <laughs> focus on that passage. I was big into playing with dolls as a kid. I don't know. What about you, Rachel? I was really big into playing with dolls. And I always feel bad admitting that as a feminist because I feel like I'm supposed to be like, I I feel like it's way cooler to be like, I never was interested in dolls. I just was always interested in studying foreign Mm. religion. I was not. I was not interested in, I was interested in dolls. I loved them. Me too. And I think that's part of why this section of the book really resonated with me. So Claudia describes how as a little girl, her big Christmas gift was always this big blue eyed baby doll. And the adults who are giving her the doll, the way they react when she receives the gift, tells her that this is supposed to be something that she really likes. Right? Like, Oh my God, just that is such a powerful scene. Like the way that the adult's expectation is on her, like from the sounds that they made, I knew that I was supposed to be thrilled. Yeah, but but she doesn't want to pretend that she's the doll's mother. She doesn't want to cuddle with it in bed. Instead, 
This is what this is what Claudia says. I had only one desire to dismember it, to see of what it was made, to discover the dearness, to find the beauty, the desirability that had escaped me, but apparently only me. So Oof. she gets all these white baby dolls given to her and she destroys them. She breaks off their fingers, she plucks out their eyes, and she's kind of horrified by herself, I guess, because she sees those feelings that she has toward the dolls reflected in her feelings toward actual white girls. She says, I wanted to discover what eluded me, what made people look at them and say, aw, but not for me. So in a way, Claudia, I feel like is searching for love and love and acceptance, just like Piccola, but they're just going about it in different ways. Piccola wants blue eyes. She loves drinking from the Shirley Temple cup at Claudia's house. That's why she drank so much milk. <laughs> um, she loves yeah. staring at the girl on the Mary Jane's candy wrapper. And then there's Claudia who busts up baby dolls. Mm -hmm. I think it would be interesting to explore that difference given how Claudia is the one who was raised in a loving and caring household and mm. Piccola was quite the opposite. So yes, I too like really latched on to the doll part and maybe it, because, you know, I think you're right that it is kind of, it's Claudia's bluest eye. It's Picola who wants the blue eyes. It's Claudia who wants this invisible something that white little girls seem to get, which is almost like, which is the regard of others, you know? It's like, she wants somebody to look at her and go, aw, and not be like, mm. you know, mm -hmm. which is what anybody wants. And when I read this chapter, I thought of that famous experiment. I think a lot of people, it's kind of in the popular consciousness but it's a famous experiment by Dr. Kenneth Clark and Dr. Mamie Clark. They were a married couple. He was the first black man to earn a PhD in psychology from Columbia. And she was right after him, the first black woman and the only the second black person to do the same. And in the 1940s, they were psychologists and researchers um, and they worked in with young people, children in Harlem for many years. And what they're most famous for is a series of experiments that they designed and carried out in the 1940s. In those experiments, they presented black children with four dolls and the dolls were identical except for their color. So they ranged from very pale to very dark. And then they asked the kids to identify the, the dolls by race and then to indicate the dolls that they preferred. Or they asked them to do something like, a which is the good doll? And then mm. the kids would point. And then which doll do you like the best? Which one is nice? Which one is a bad doll? So forth. Overwhelmingly and tragically, all kids, including and especially black kids, assigned positive characteristics to the white doll and said that they preferred it, even as they understood that they themselves resembled the black mm. doll. And the Clark's research was cited in the Supreme Court decision Brown versus, in, in Brown versus Board of Education 
experiments like it have been repeated a number of times. You can go on YouTube right now, enter Dolltest Clark, and you'll see videos of kids pointing to dolls and saying things and basically showing how young kids really are when they begin to internalize this idea that black is bad and white is good. When I show my students these videos with these like little, little, little kids expressing like admiration for whiteness and even disdain for their own blackness. Many of my students were so uncomfortable, were so sad and even started to ask questions. They started to wonder a little bit. It's like, it doesn't make any sense for a young child to despise what she looks like unless someone has been teaching her to do that. So that experiment was conducted in the 1940s, which is about when the bluest eye takes place. And I became curious about when black baby dolls became more commonplace. In that curiosity, I found out about baby Nancy, who was created in the 60s by a company called Shindana Toys, which came out of something called Operation Bootstrap. That was an organization created with the goal of economic empowerment of the Black community in Los Angeles. Baby Nancy was noted to be the first doll made to actually look Black with Black features. Mm. The later versions of her had an Afro hairstyle. Instead of just being a white doll dipped in chocolate, as one of the Operation Bootstrap founders said. So I wish that Claudia had gotten to have one of those dolls. I know. I wonder if she would love it. So I specifically remember when when I was a kid, out of all the dolls that I had, two of them were black. One was one of Barbie's friends. It wasn't a black Barbie. It was Barbie's friend. Yep. Who was in Barbie and the Rockers with her. Her name was Dee Dee. Oh, yeah, of course. And she kind of like, I always thought of her just kind of as like my Whitney Houston doll. <laughs> and then, you know, the American Girl dolls. Of course. When when we were growing up. Oh, yeah. There was one black doll introduced who was Addie. I had Molly, who was, you know, the girl with glasses from the 1940s. Me too. But then at some point they came out with these like mini versions of the dolls. And I got the mini Addie. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I love the Addie stories. Those were the only books besides the Molly books that I owned my own copies of. Ooh, nice. Yes, mm. I love those. My only black doll growing up, I actually don't remember getting it. I mm. think it was a gift from a Caribbean friend. And it was like a little brown rag doll in a little like island print dress. And it had black yarn hair. And when Claudia talks about hugging the baby doll and it's like hard yes. in bed yes i always preferred a rag doll because mm-hmm. like that is the doll you could take to bed like you wouldn't take i didn't take my american girl doll to bed no no that's for playing with uh-huh yeah and i think i preferred dolls like the american girl dolls that were girls as opposed to baby dolls yes so i kind of related to claudia where she said i didn't want to pretend to be that doll's mother like yes when i played with dolls i didn't pretend i was their mom i pretended that they were my friends yes for me too mostly although i will say like there were stage there might be stages where my friend and i i can remember very vividly like one summer my friend naomi and i like Mm. 
played with our baby dolls all like but it was like what we were doing we were like what yeah. if we pretended that we were these baby's older sisters yeah. you know it's like part well, of the so game. like you were but playing yeah. ha- you were playing house right yeah with baby dolls mm-hmm. but the the doll that you could relate to like the doll that you would see yourself in yeah it was the preferred doll experience that's why we both got molly something about those little glasses i know and her braids and her braids <laughs> but we digress <laughs> i like the mary jane's candy wrapper thing too i thought oh, that was yeah. like a really good how it pulls the tooth she doesn't say that it's a mary jane but it's picola's mother that loses her tooth yeah on candy watching the movie Mm. Which is just like such a brilliant bringing together of these images that she's working with. Like Mm. the rottingness of sugar and the rottingness of like unrealistic beauty expectations and the rottenness of racism. All All wrapped into one. Yeah. (laughs) And I I really liked that we got those flashbacks of Picola's parents too. Because I feel like when we first met them or even when we first read about them they're like horrible people (laughs) and then even when you see them in their home they're like horrible parents but Toni Morrison goes back and shows them to us as kids as younger adults so you get to see where they came from. I feel like that was everything in this book. Like, to the Heschel quote again, this book was so much about how with a little bit of curiosity and, and just knowing, a, like, a couple of scene, like key scenes from a person's history, you can mm-hmm. understand so much more of, like, how people came to be the way they are. Like, many stories are just content to, like, introduce us to a monster and or monster monstrosity of experience and not be curious about like how somebody got to be that way yeah so speaking of the monstrosity after reading it i understand why some people take issue oh yes with this book the bluest eye frequently appears on lists of challenged and banned books that we see going around today. In 2021, it was in the number eight spot on the ALA's top 10 most challenged books list. Yeah, even in 2021, you know, 50 years after it was published, it was banned and challenged because it depicts child sexual abuse and was considered sexually explicit. It's also been on the list of most challenged books by decade from the 90s onward and it's actually moved up on that list in the 90s it was number 34 most challenged in the 2000s it was number 15 most challenged and in the 2010s it was the number 10 most challenged so certainly the the rape of Piccola by her father and the assault of Claudia's sister Frida by their boarder Mr. Washington and the abuse of other unnamed girls by the character Soped Church are all extremely disturbing. And side note, for me, this part about Soped Church was like really disturbing. Oh, yeah. The part about how he like logically decided that he was going to go after little girls. It's interesting that you emphasize the logical explanation as being the 
the chilling mm. thing because in some ways yeah what like the chilling thing about this novel and i would say like of everything i've read of morrison's there's such a flawless logic to it like it's really logical how a little black girl could want to harm little white girls because of the toxic messages mm. that she's getting so that's all so disturbing and you have to wonder why as an author did morrison choose that for piccola piccola could have just been bullied by classmates why the extremity yeah why so for me i went to the author's note which was in the beginning of the paperback copy that i had but at the end of the audiobook that i listened to interestingly so in the author's note morrison writes in trying to dramatize the devastation that even casual racial contempt can cause i chose a unique situation not a representative one the extremity of Picola's case stemmed largely from a crippled and crippling family, unlike the average Black family and unlike the narrators or Claudia's. But singular as Picola's life was, I believe some aspects of her woundability were lodged in all young girls. In exploring the social and domestic aggression that could cause a child to literally fall apart, I mounted a series of rejections. Some routine, some exceptional, mm. some monstrous. So she, Toni Morrison, acknowledges that she purposely had Piccola go through this monstrous experience. And at the same time, as she acknowledges that it's monstrously extreme, it um, the way she describes it there almost sounds like she's putting it on a continuum with the ca the more casual everyday ignorance mm -hmm. and hatred and you know the grinding poverty i think there's a lot about it's obviously very much a novel about race and gender but it's also mm. very much about class how with an economic situation stacked against you in certain ways it would be hard to have any pride of ownership for example, and by sort of patiently and again, like logically showing how, you know, renting your furniture from a rent to own place sort of means that you are kind of endlessly paying for this stuff that you never liked to begin with. It sort of explains how houses can fall into disrepair and, or people's living situations can become unlovely when they simply just do not have the resources and outsiders are inclined to judge them and to judge squalor in moral terms when it's a very logical outcome of like the circumstances that a person finds themselves in. Yeah. And that made me think of one section where Piccola's family is being introduced and their home. Mm -hmm. It says, they lived there because they were poor and black and they stayed there because they believed they were ugly yes i mean it goes on to talk about how piccola's father's behavior was ugly and the rest of the family wore their ugliness put it on so to speak so it's like piccola has been told that she's ugly and that's just how she believes things are and well she does wish <laughs> for the blue eyes that she believes are the only way 
that she would be beautiful. To me, the bluest eye is about the tragedy of that self-loathing mm. and what happens to someone who can't overcome it. No. I didn't see any hope for Piccola at the end of the book. And even though I guess that's true to life, not everyone has a happy ending. I hate that. <laughs> I hate it too. You so much want Piccola to find, to discover her own loveliness. And I think, so Morrison talks a little bit about why she created the the character mm-hmm. of Piccola like came to her first, I think she says in the author's note. But then because Piccola couldn't be a narrator for her own experience, mm-hmm. so she creates like friends. Like so it's kind of mostly Claudia's perspective of Piccola. And knowing everything that comes after and everything that Piccola goes through, the image where I like located some hope is the image of yes. Piccola coming and staying with Frida and mm. Claudia. Um, social services has brought her there. And yeah, even her, their mother is not thrilled to have her, but they are making this mm. effort so that she wouldn't feel out of doors. And Morrison explains what out of doors is. Basically, mm. you know, no place to live, no family to take you in. And the beauty of these two little girls welcoming in this stranger and feeling interested in her and rolling out the carpet such as they had for her is like such a beautiful beautiful thing and it's like you can see in that lineup she's just another little girl and even at the end when when they find out what happened to Bicola and that she's pregnant they are like the only ones in the town who have a concern for her and a concern for the baby mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they kind of do their little ritual of planting the seeds yes. to make everything be all right for Piccola. They're all, the only ones who were like welcoming mm-hmm. her and her and her situation. Yeah. Whereas the rest of the town kind of takes the perspective that people do take on things they regard as monstrous. Even Mary Shelley's Frankenstein's creation is not monstrous in any way, except in the way that people kind of hate on him. Yeah, I do like how you point out the hopefulness and at least the way that Claudia and Frida accepted Piccola. And I wanted to recommend two more contemporary books, middle grade novels about young Black girls who experience a lot of the same pain as Piccola in terms of feeling ugly and unlovable, but who come out stronger in the end. So one is The Skin I'm In by Sharon Flake, which at this point is almost like a classic itself because it's like 20 years old. Um, But the other one is more recently published, Genesis Begins Again by Alicia D. Williams. And I think you should add both of those to your reading list. They're kind of like, I feel like they're the younger sisters of the bluest eye, but where the bluest eye is for older teenagers and adults, those books that I mentioned can be read by a middle schooler. Yes, that's important to note. The bluest eye is definitely not middle grade fiction. Andrea, how would you use this book in school, if at all? So, I mean, I would definitely have it on the shelf in the high school library. Uh, As far as a classroom, I kind of feel like it should be studied only with the most mature high school students, juniors and seniors, probably. 
And I was curious to ask you, Rachel, as an AP English teacher, because we read Sula in an AP English class, how do AP English teachers decide what novels to study with their students? Is there an official list of books to read to prepare for the exam or an unofficial list of recommended reading? How does that work? I should have probably looked this up earlier (laughs) now that I look at it. Well, from your own experience. Oh, yeah. So from my experience, so I I have experience teaching the AP English language and composition class, not the AP English literature and and composition class. Mm -hmm. However, I can tell you that there is no required book list at all. And simply because college board tests are pretty international. So there are sort of guidelines for how to select texts. Mm. And there are, I think, like loose recommendations of texts unofficial lists, if you will. Mm. Um, But there aren't like official college board lists. Um, As far as how people decide, there is such a wide variety. And again, that's, I think, probably part of the college board wanting their exams to be usable by the widest swath of people possible. But there's enormous latitude based on the state that, that you're in, the kind of school, whether public or private. Yes. So I feel like this book is a great example of why we might want to have alternate texts available when we make reading lists for a course. So maybe like another book through which students could explore similar themes, but with less triggering content for lack of a better word. I'm even picturing on a syllabus like a chart for each unit of study and for each unit of study that explores a different theme students could pick from column a or column b and under each title we could put content warnings like you know be aware that the bluest eye does depict child sexual abuse and rape so if for any reason that's not the right book for a student to read, present them with an alternative from the beginning. I'm increasingly seeing teachers um, and schools use models where students are reading different different books on the same themes. Mm. And I think it does, it does some things really, really well. And I think because of the nature of this book, I would absolutely, I would hesitate a long time before putting this book on a high school syllabus. I really would. Just because we say we might not have it as required reading on a syllabus doesn't mean that we think it has no literary value. And I feel like uh, on some of these banned and challenged book lists that we've seen recently, The Bluest Eye was included among books that were removed from a school library because they had no literary value. And uh, how can you how can you say that? (laughs) One of the things that I find most frustrating in the discussion about what students are reading and what books should and should not be available in schools is that the issue of sexual explicitness 
seems to serve as like a convenient mm. scapegoat for why a book is being challenged. And I think what people probably really find disturbing about this book is that in it, there's a little black girl who talks about wanting, ripping apart little white baby dolls and how there's some degree of transference between her fervor mm. for ripping up little white baby dolls and her desire to knock little Shirley Temple's block off because Shirley Tam Temple is dancing with her friends and she feels how unfair it is to be a little black girl in America. And she's not wrong. And Toni Morrison shows us in like undeniably poetic, beautiful, heart-wrenching language that she's not wrong. Like her logic is perfect. And it's terrible. And I think how you can read that and not see like the terrible thing here is the destruction of a soul. But you're only seeing like she uses the word vagina. She uses the word penis. You know, it seems almost like a willful kind of blindness to what the real issue is and issues are. Now, I say that knowing that, you know, attributing motives to people that are different than the ones they say. Like if someone says like this is upsetting to me because it depicts sexual violence. I think we need mm. to take them at their word and allow them to make it. I don't know. What do we do with that? Like, cause obviously like on the one hand, Andrea, we're talking about how right. we want to make alternative texts available. We want to support students who may have be survivors mm. of rape or incest. Um, so like, how do we support, like, I don't know what I'm asking exactly, but like, how do we support the book without, how do we underscore the importance and value without making it seem like the book is, is dirty to use a, a word that the book itself puts on mm. sex and sexuality and shameful things. I think it just all goes back to the freedom to read. You know, you can decide that a certain book is not for you and that's okay, but don't, try to tell other people what they can read or what their children can read, which is what I don't know. Is that the thesis of our podcast? <laughs> don't tell us what to read or not read. Right. But you can't make that choice for other people. Yeah. You can read, yeah. you can choose what you want to read. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> so for the playlist for the bluest eye, I picked Sullen Girl by Fiona Apple, which is from her first album, Title, which... Which you made a tape of for me. Okay. I was going to say, you're from the mid-late 90s. You're familiar yes. with that, right? So it came out when Fiona Apple was about 18, 19 years old. And the song Selling Girl was in part a response to her being raped by a stranger when she was 12. I don't know if you knew that. And it's not specifically about the rape, but it's about the way people perceived her and treated her afterward. So the lyric that I picked out is there's too much going on. But it's calm under the waves in the blue of my oblivion. The lyrics reminded me of the end of The Bluest Eye, when Claudia and the other people in the town see Piccola walking around just as a broken shell of a person. But 
Picola herself takes solace in the pretty blue eyes that she believes she finally has. The song I picked is Tracy Chapman's Behind the Wall, which is a song about domestic violence, and it is told from the perspective of a neighbor who is listening to the screams and the shouts from behind the wall and reflecting that it won't really do any good to call the police. And that same sort of devastating inevitability has some similarities to Claudia's perspective on Picola. She witnesses what is happening to her friend, but is ultimately unable to stop the devastation. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Lit Mix. Check the link in our show notes for other perspectives and resources on the books and topics discussed in this show. Lit Mix is created, hosted, and produced by Andrea Benvenuto and me, Rachel Stone. Follow us on Instagram at litmixpodcast or email us at litmixpodcast at gmail.com. Like what you hear? Subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Or drop a few coins in our tip jar on Ko-Fi. Thanks for your support.